You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to jump from Ruth, one famous lady of the Bible, to another famous lady of the Bible, the book of Esther, uh, chapter 1. We're fast-forwarding hundreds of years. The book of Ruth happened between kind of Moses and Joshua and uh, and, and happened between there and the New Testament and uh, there and King David, I should say. And Esther happens long after King David. Most of the kings had, had already lived. In fact, Esther was alive just about 400 years before Jesus. So we're actually, even though she the, the book is kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically it actually happens near the very end of the Old Testament. And uh, just an amazing comparison. Two ladies that just had a phenomenal deep faith in God and uh, two books that just really unpack the, the providence, the, the, the work of God invisibly in our lives and in the world around us when we don't see it or can't touch it, it's there. In fact, Esther, even more so, the, the, the God himself is not mentioned anywhere in this book. It's one of the very unique things of, of all the books of the Bible, and yet it's so clear that he's superintending and governing even over the affairs of Persia. When we went through the book of Daniel, as you'll remember, uh, Daniel had all of the predictions of the different and empires that would arise, and one of those would be the, the Persian Empire. And Esther's living out that prophecy of Daniel. She's living in that world, and, uh, and so I'm excited to share with it. But this morning, before we get into that deeper picture and before we meet Esther herself, where chapter 1 is all about kind of the backstory. We're going to be introduced to King Ahasuerus. He's, he's king. He is over the entire Persian Empire, huge, enormous empire. Uh, in essence, you know, it had been like the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire of the day. It was the major political power of that day. And we're going to see he and his wife, have a rough time in their relationship in chapter 1. In fact, by the end of it, they're, they're done. So read with me the first few verses, uh, first 12 verses or so, and we'll kind of walk through this this morning. Esther chapter 1, the Bible says this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, so get that in your brain, right across the Middle East from the northern Africa, across the Middle East, going over past Iran, all the way over to India just before you get to China. That was the, the, the empire that he ruled. And in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles of and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Get the picture. Life is good in Persia. The enemy's not knocking at the door. They have vanquished all their enemies. There's no need to be running out and fighting. For six months, he's hanging out in his palace, showing everybody what an incredible guy he is and how wealthy they are and just how amazing everything is. Six months. I mean, just put the whole country, I guess, on pause. There was nothing to do because life was so good. So continue on with this picture. In verse 5, And when these days were completed... 
The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. For six months, he was hanging out with his political leaders and, and the, the military leaders and the, the leaders from all the provinces, probably 500 to 1,000 people just celebrating the splendor of this king and of their kingdom and enjoying the good life. But now they're throwing a weeks-long party that everybody, from the poorest to the mightiest, could, could all of life shut down, and they just partied with the king. Now look at the, the, the Bible goes in great detail at how uh, exquisite these things were. In verse 6 it says, There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. That was the pavement, mother of pearl and all of those stones. That was their, what they walked on. Purple was an expensive color in that day, a dye, extremely expensive because it doesn't naturally occur that many places in nature. And so telling us the opulence, the money that this kingdom had amassed. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the, the guys are partying in his palace, in his area, and the ladies are over there having fun in their place. And then in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbona. I bet none of you named your kids or would ever name your kids any of these names. I sure would not. Bigtha? Definitely not that one. Abagtha? I can't even say these that well. Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. So he sent them out to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order, here's the whole reason, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Pray with me, would you? Father, it's good to be back together with family and with your family today. I thank you for that privilege personally. Father, thank you for this uh, incredible book of the Bible and for the testimony of Esther that we're going to unfold over the next few weeks. And Lord, I pray this morning that this chapter one, that we would learn some things that would, would bless our lives, Father. Lessons for our own relationships with others. Um, Lord, would you open uh, the eyes of our heart to see this word, to see the truth in them and to apply them to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My message this morning is divorce-proofing your marriage. Divorce-proofing your marriage. The king says, lady, time for you to come and show off for me. And she said, nothing doing. I ain't coming, kingy-poo. And the king got angry and raged with anger. And we'll see as the rest of the chapter unfolds 
The king is done with her at this point. He, in essence, divorces her. doesn't really divorce her, but the Bible tells us that she no longer comes into his presence. She stayed in the harem. He would not have released her. So she had a life of banishment, a life of exile, a life of isolation, no longer lifted up uh, whatsoever. And we see a complete meltdown, a complete crash and burn of their relationship or what should have been their relationship. We really get the picture as the chapter unfolds that this is not a healthy, good relationship between husband and wife. This is a, she was a show wife. She was a trophy wife. She was there to show the, the, the power and the, the opulence of the kingdom. And that's part of the problem. So what I want to do this morning is to Take just some simple lessons that we see from here. You know, whenever there's a plane crash, the National Transportation Safety Board goes in and studies it. They will wholesale take the plane, the crash site apart, put it back together, see what bolts failed, see what engineering failed, see what, what went down to look at that, what happened, why that plane crashed. And we kind of want to do that today. We want to do an autopsy to say, why did this relationship totally crash and burn for the benefit for you and I and our own relationships. Now, some of you guys aren't married, obviously. So you're, the way that you can look at this, since some of you are going to get married one day, look at this for the future. Some of you are like, I don't ever plan to get married, and that's okay, obviously. Take these principles because most of these principles apply to relationships in general, not just marriages. Marriages are just a typical relationship plus a little bit more. So these are principles for you and I to live and how to relate with others. Now, there's, there's several lessons in here this morning, guys. I'm going to do my best to get to six. I'm not going to go too long, but we're going to hit them fast. But there's even a couple more. So let's dig in, see where the problem really happened, why... Did this marriage fail, and what can we learn from it? First, first lesson, first mistake, number one, is they had a poor foundation. Here's the king and queen, and the king did not base his relationship with his wife, one of many. He had a harem, multiple ladies. Obviously, there's a foundation. Well, there's a principle there, too. Marry one spouse. Don't marry a bunch of people at once, right? That's never a good idea. I think we all got that one, so I didn't want to spend much time on that one. But obviously, their foundation is not good. They have a horrible foundation in which to build upon. The bottom line reason when marriages fail, the number one reason is because they have a poor foundation. They don't have a, a, a foundation, a, a, a strength, a base upon which they can build a relationship that will stand the test of time. The Bible tells us over and over that the one foundation that we should build our life upon, that we can build our life upon, is none other than Jesus himself. He is the one that we should stand upon. It is him and his teachings, his salvation in our life, the truths that he teaches us, that, that we should firmly build our life upon that rock, as Jesus taught himself. And everything about our life, whether it's our marriage, whether it is our business, how we, we live in our family, everything should be founded upon. Jesus Christ. As this couple runs into a major issue and he gets just so mad, the Bible is so descriptive that this, he raged inside and it just burned within him. There's no, as he's considering, we'll see in the rest of chapter one, there's no consideration. Well, what does God want me to do? What's the godly thing to do? How should I handle this? What does the Bible say? If you don't want your marriage to stand the test of time, 
If you want it to finally fail one day, I'm told today the, the highest divorce rate amongst classes of people, is it the millennials? Mm -mm. Is it Gen X? Boomers. There's the highest divorce rate of those getting divorced today is actually the 60 and something beyond. And if, we, if you don't want your marriage to last the test of time, not just 10, 20, 30, but to go the distance, then build it on a foundation other than Jesus Christ himself. Build it upon whatever thoughts you have, whatever desires and opinions, your own common sense, whatever whims of the day may go on. Build your relationship for there, and you will absolutely be sure to, down the road, to begin to fail. And not only is that divorce rate highest, but we all know couples that, that stay together on paper, but their hearts have been far apart for forever. They just have learned to make do, and they're not divorced in reality, but they are in, in practical uh, reality of their lives. So number one, mistake number one that we see, looking at the disaster of this relationship between this man and woman, this king and queen, is they had a bad foundation. Mistake number two, have self-focused expectations. I chose that carefully. I was originally going to say selfish expectations, but you know, I, I think I'm right in this, and you can maybe disagree with me and have a different spin on it, but I think most of us don't think we're really selfish people. I don't run into too many people that really say, yeah, I'm just really selfish. I think most people are like, well, I'm not selfish. And especially when things get tense in a relationship. We want what we want. And our expectations are that things will be go a certain way. And we be treated a certain way. And things happen a certain way. And we think we're right. And we don't view that as being selfish. So I'm going to change it for us. It's actually self-focused expectations. So if you want your marriage, if you want your relationship, your friendship, whether it's family or friends or whatever, just, just make sure that you keep everything about you. Keep, keep what happens, your opinions, what goes on. Keep it focused on you. When things go wrong, make sure that you keep it all about you. You see, the king is hanging out with his buddies for a week. He had already, this is coming off of six months. I mean, can you imagine government shutting down for like six months and just that much money and whatever is going on that we could just not do anything and then for a whole week throw a party for everybody in the kingdom? I mean, it's, it's crazy what's going on. And in the middle of that, the guy was obviously, you know, feeling pretty good and having his drinks or whatever. He's like, oh, let me get Queen Vashti in here. Let me show her off. See how amazing she is. It was all about his own interest and focus. It never crossed his mind. I wonder how her party's going. I wonder what she's doing. He didn't send those eunuchs over there like, hey, check in on her to see if now would be a good time, maybe a week from Thursday. He didn't give any consideration to what she was going. Maybe she had the sniffles, wasn't feeling too well. It was all about what he wanted to make himself look good. It was all about him, all about what he wanted. Now, we don't really have the picture from her end of what was going on. I mean, I don't think in that relationship, well, she was love a whole lot that he really didn't care about her that much? I think probably. I don't think she felt that loved, and maybe she just had had enough. Maybe she had had the ladies around. Maybe there was a feminist movement going on, and they were like, yeah, let's show it to the guys. But she's like, I'm not coming. And we don't know of any explanation. 
So if you want your marriage to not go the distance, then make sure that when you have fights and disagreements and you have all of those things of life, make sure you keep the spotlight on what you want and make sure that you stay focused on you and not the other person. And, and you, will, you too can enjoy a great crash and burn experience like Ahasuerus and, and Vashti had. Mistake number two is to not think about the other person and to stay self-focused. Folks, take a, a serious step back. You and I, when it really, not, when things are going good, these things don't matter so much. But when things are getting rough, you need to step back and you need to take a hard look at how much you still are projecting your expectations on the other person and how much you're expecting them to act and to do and to respond and, and whatever for you. You need to back away from that. And your job is to serve and to love and not to draw the lines in the sand. In fact, a warning sign that you are self-focused is when you draw lines in the sand and ultimatums and put down the, the expectations it's going to be that way. Congratulations, you have become very self-focused in your relationship and you need to back up. Third mistake, make sure you blame the other person. Make sure that you put all the blame on the other person. You know, when this happens, Ahasuerus gathers his people, we'll see in just a moment. But he doesn't ask the question, guys, did I do something wrong? Did I offend Vashti two weeks ago when we were together? Is this an unreasonable request? Oh, well, I didn't think to ask her if this is convenient. Not at all. Instead, because he's so self-focused, he automatically assumes it's her fault, and he blames her for everything. You see, when we, in our relationships, this applies, again, not to just husbands and wives, it applies to all relationships, but when problems surface, we're convinced we're right. I mean, let's be honest, we all think we're right. If we didn't, we would change our mind, and then we'd be right. None of us stay in the spot where we think we're wrong. Kind of doesn't work that way. Everybody's convinced they're right. This happens. So make sure that you're convinced you're right and never entertain the idea that there might be another valid perspective at the table, that you might be missing something. And make sure you blame the other person for whatever is going on. And make sure, by the way, that you take the more high ground, that you come up with some spiritual reasons why you're right and the other person's wrong. And that they're unthinking and unfeeling and not loving you and not loving God enough and not serving. And, and, and just the blame on the other person. Don't take responsibility. It'd be kind of like you and I if we took our car out and, uh, and we just wanted to see how fast it could go. And we hit the highway and just forget the troopers or dangers to other people. And we just floored it. And we, it would be like you and I either blowing the engine or wrapping it around a tree. And then the officer be like, what were you doing? Be like, well, it's not my fault. The car should have been able to handle this fine. I read the man. It should. And the officer's like, What? What are you thinking? Of course it's your fault. You were driving. You see, one of the best things that we can do in our life is take responsibility. We are so blinded when we put 
when it, it comes from our expectations that we have on the other person, that we think the other person is all to blame. And before we know it, we focus on all of that and, and, and we're blinded to our own responsibility. And what happens is, is we live irresponsibility. And the other person knows it and they see it. And rather than bringing together, it actually separates people. Mom and dad, as you have your kids, one of the best things you could ever teach your kids today is to take responsibility. There's an epidemic in our culture of people not taking responsibility for their life and blaming everybody else for everything under the sun. And you and I need to take responsibility. So make sure King Ahasuerus looked at Esther. I'm the king. I'm the man. She should have come. This is on her. It's her fault, her problem. She's the issue here. She's the whole problem. While I'm not, not getting my needs met, my needs met, it's all on her. And because of it, they begin to fall apart. Fourth thing, follow the popular advice. Look what, look what happens after verse 12. Follow the, follow the cultural norms of the day. Follow the popular opinions of friends and people around you. Look at, look at what verse 13 says. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times. This is verse 13. The king said to the wise men who knew the times. Like these were, this was his uh, cabinet members. For this was the king's procedure to all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. This is a big deal. These were his inner circle, his court. He turned to them and was like, what are we going to do? What do you think I should do, boys? The queen's offended me. She's not responded. I need some counsel. In verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the commands of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? What's to be done? Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but all against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say... King Hasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who've heard and wrath and plenty. I'm getting the picture that had concerns about his own wife. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, my wife's not going to obey me anymore. I'm, we, this is crazy, which by the way, so many people say the Bible is such a, a chauvinist, patriarchal picture. No, that's what this is. <laughs> this is Persia. The Bible actually puts men and women on a very equal playing field and, and lifts everywhere it goes, the plight of women for everywhere. But that's a whole other conversation another time. But how would you ladies like to live in that kingdom and that culture? Wow. It'll, it'll get a little bit deeper in a minute. The king says, what should we do? And one guy stands up like, well, we got a big problem here, king. Oh, we can't let these ladies think that they can push the men around. Queen Vashti's messed up against you, but she's also caused a problem in every household in the whole kingdom. The whole kingdom's going to erode because of her. Oh, we got to deal with her. The king sought the popular culture and the cultural norm of the day. 
If you want your marriage to fail, make sure you follow the popular opinions of the culture today. Make sure you get your advice from all the, your friends, from what's normal, the way everything that goes on around you. Make sure you follow common sense. You know, rather than the king turning to them and them saying, you know what, king, I know this really offended you, and I know this made you look bad, but king, you just had six months and a week of looking really good to everybody. Like, like Vashti not coming is not that big of a deal. In fact, king, maybe what you ought to demonstrate is wisdom as a husband and a little care and concern for your wife is saying, hey, is everything okay? You've never done this before. Are you all right? You're not feeling well? Is something going on I don't know about? King, maybe this is a great opportunity for you to demonstrate how, as men and husbands, we should show a little care and concern and understanding and forgiveness with our wives. Maybe we should even be a little less demanding along the way. But no, he followed the custom and culture in the world around them. You see, folks, our foundation is Jesus and his word. And in, when things get tough in a marriage, you need to be careful really begin to narrow down the sources, the input of guidance and wisdom that you follow. And you need to get, when a, when a, a pilot is, has turbulence and difficulty in flying, they're not thinking about everything under the sun. They get really narrow to what is going on and what they need to do to problem solve and fix. And when your relationships, whether it's a marriage or friendship or whatever, when those things begin to get challenging, you need to think clear-headedly, not respond as the world around us would get ticked off, fight for our rights, draw the lines in the sand and dismiss and do away. But instead, consider what God might actually have to say about things in the situation. What an incredible opportunity for the king to say, you know what, guys, we have this law that I should be able to do this, but it's kind of a stupid law, isn't it? Like, you know, she's got her own party. He should have, he should have stepped back somewhere along the way and said, my wife deserves better than that. And shame on me for demanding in such a way, just breaking into your world, these kinds of things. But he didn't. He followed the popular advice. Two more things, and I'm going to finish. Number five, say, say that it's best for the kids that you get divorced. You see, we don't know if Vashti and Ahasuerus had kids or not. But he was taking a high road in his mind, like, oh, yeah, I need to put Queen Vashti away because it's what's best for the kingdom. It's what's best for all of my kids out there. It's what they need. There's a lie that couples believe that when they've been struggling and fighting for so long and they've seen the kids that are just their faces fallen and hurting and crying and broken up, seeing mom and dad fighting and struggling with their relationship. There's a lie that parents will believe that, well, you know what? Let's just divorce for the kids. It's good for the kids. That way they don't have to deal with us fighting anymore. A number of studies are showing, and 
By the way, I say that a little carefully because today that's being thrown around an awful lot. Follow the science is being used as a phrase like you should believe everything that's out there. Be smarter than what the media and everybody tells you when studies show and science shows. There's a lot of opinion in science and studies. So I use that phrase carefully and cautiously, but there are a number of studies that show that divorce always damages kids. The propensity, the tendency is for kids to take on the blame. Like they think it's their fault mom and dad can't get along. And they take on guilt and shame and, at an age where they shouldn't be taking any of that on. And it hurts and it cuts deeply. Nobody has to tell a kid that their mom and dad should be able to figure it out. Nobody has to tell, nobody has to train, nobody has to educate a child to say, your parents aren't supposed to get divorced. You, you don't need a textbook for that. It's hardwired into us because it's part of the way God designed this world to work. And in fact, when your kids are adults and you get divorced, it actually hurts just as bad. Yeah, they're older and yeah, they can process it in some ways better, but it still stinks and it still hurts. No, what's best for the kids is you to go back and do change your expectations, stop that, stop the blame game, stop the self-focused expectations, go back and begin putting some foundations down deep in your relationship, which you can in Jesus Christ, and begin to forgive and begin to work through those things. And don't just assume that, that it's going to be best for the kids. That's, that's fool's gold. Somehow it almost, you know, we're so... We're so good at this as people that we will do things that are not right and not good, and we finagle a way to justify it and make it sound like we're magnanimous or heroes and noble and doing something that's bad. It's, we're so warped in our brains at how we do that. Don't, don't fall on that. Yeah, it's good if your kids don't see you fighting and at each other, but the solution is not separate. The solution is coming together. And in Jesus Christ, guys, you can do that. Absolutely. God is able to do that in your life. He's able to work in you. He's able to work in your spouse. He's able to work through things over time. It will take time. And it will take some deep humility and some deep vulnerability over the days and weeks and years ahead. But the God of heaven will give you that strength. Last thing and I'm done. Last mistake. Make sure that you assume that you can go out and just get another spouse. Think that you can just go get somebody else. Read with me the last part of this, of this book. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order to go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes. They created a law for this, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. And he sent letters to all the royal princes, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Wow! That's breathtaking. Master of his own home. You guys go home and try that with your wives and see how that works. Huh? 
That actually is a patriarchal male-dominated culture and society. Unbelievably so. Only about them. But what's breathtaking is that he thought he could just go out and get another one. I'll just go find somebody else. I'll get somebody better. Because we don't love each other that much anymore. We've fallen out of love. And I deserve better. I deserve something different. Other lies that people begin to tell themselves. So if you want your marriage to fail, to make sure you begin entertaining those thoughts, to think that there's somebody else out there better for you. To think that maybe you made the mistake and that things you deserve something differently. Think that you can go out and, and get somebody else. Folks, that's, that's fool's gold. The king made a major mistake in his relationship, made a major mistake for his kingdom. I can't fathom what that life looked like in that kingdom from that day forward. But it was a far cry from what God has for us as men and women to love and honor one another and to serve and to treat one another as equals before a holy God of heaven and to fulfill the roles that he's given us uh, individually as men and women, husbands and wives together. But make sure that you just think that you're better and you deserve something more. So this morning, what in your life do you need to think about related to this? I know, as I said earlier on, many of you are married, many of you are not. Some of you are close to getting married. And some of you are hoping to get married. Some of you are like, no, I'm going to be single the rest of my life. But where in your life right now, in your relationships with people, do you need to think about this? Have you been blaming people or a person for some things? Have you been not taking responsibility? Have you been willing to say, God, would you show me where I messed up? Ooh, there's a great thought. God, this is a mess. God, would you help me to really see where I've messed up so I can improve? regardless of where my friend, co-worker, my spouse is, that I can be the person I'm supposed to be. And God, I trust you to work in that person's life. Maybe in the process of it, you realize you haven't really built your foundation. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you got married before you and your wife or your spouse or husband or whatever trusted Christ. Maybe you need to go back and put some foundation under some things you had never done before. I don't know. But whatever God has kind of spoken into your heart, would you just respond to Him and take that next step today? Respond to Him in faith. Respond to Him in obedience. Respond to Him in, in trust. And ask the God of heaven to work in your life. You see, the real secret sauce when marriages make it it's not that they just found the one that makes each happy person happy and is perfectly compatible. That's a myth. There's nobody perfectly compatible to your warped, selfish desires. Nobody. Nobody. When couples make it work, and when their lives flourish, and they don't just survive and thrive, it's when both people have learned to humble themselves before God, to stop trying to fix the other person. Stop. They start asking God to work in that other person's life as an act of love, not as an act of defense or protection for them. 
and they start taking responsibility for their stuff, and they start realizing that, you know what, no matter how my spouse or my friend responds, I'm responsible to the God of heaven to act the way that I'm supposed to act. God's watching. And so I want my heart pure before God to get this right. And they start living out of that. And as they start living that out, it begins to often to begin to affect the other person. And they begin, and before you know it, two people are overcoming years of crud and junk. You ever clean a bathroom after it hasn't been cleaned for a long time or clean out something? It just things get nasty. And when we have relationships that just have allowed that stuff to accumulate, it takes a long time for that to get cleared away. But God will do it if you start taking those steps and it allows you to come back together. So I don't know how God has spoken, but would you respond to Him along that way? And maybe you, God hasn't spoken anything to convict you or challenge you. Maybe you just be encouraged that you've done some of these things in your life. Maybe you need to thank God for the grace that He's put in you and your relationship together. Give Him thanks for that, because ultimately at the end of the day, when you have a relationship, again, with friend, family, or if it's a spouse, a close one like that, the only reason it's together and good is because of the grace of God in heaven has changed your life and put you together in an incredible way. But whatever God has spoken, would you simply respond to Him today? Let me pray for you. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus who loves us and died for us. God, I thank You for the testimony to learn from the mistake of somebody else. Mistakes, learning from our own mistakes is costly and painful. And Father, we've all made them and we will all continue to make them. Hopefully, Lord, by your grace, they get fewer and smaller along the way. But help us to learn from these big mistakes that we see here from this couple. And God, may we grow in the grace and relationship that we have through Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that you change our life through his blood by him dying on the cross. And because that changes us, then we in turn can be a part of a changed relationship with others. Lord, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a blessed week. Thanks for listening. Join us on Sundays at 930 and 11 or online at riveralbany.com.